0: Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention
1: YESTERDAY!
0: It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday to you. Happy weekend, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are ably assisted once again of a Saturday by our buddy, Nathan Miller, the tall guy. Nathan, how are you doing
1: today? Good morning and afternoon to you, Gary and Suzanne, and first day of fall, and I got to say, I've already ditched the shorts. I'm back to wearing jeans, <laughs> as you can see, uh, a little sweater vest going on here.
0: I I don't know what the the over and under in Las Vegas would be on the ditching of shorts because in Seattle, (laughs) it's seldom shorts weather, but it's always perfect weather for sandals and socks.
1: Oh, well, I'm almost there. (laughs) I got sandals on. No socks yet, but still wearing (laughs) sandals.
2: (laughs) I am very very much
1: a sandal person.
2: Yeah, and as you said yesterday, Gary, uh, Florida only has two seasons, hot, hot and, and hotter. You got it. <laughs> that's the way it goes
0: here. They're, although they're looking for a, a winter there with this El Nino, which is going to be a particularly strong one. They don't know what's going to happen in, the, in New England and the Atlantic seaboard, but down here it's supposed to be comparatively mild, a little milder than usual, perhaps, and wetter. Oh. And I guess that's a good thing because we did not get much rain this summer. We had a drought going on.
1: That's uh kind of surprising because with Florida, you know, you get those two o'clock afternoon thunderstorms and it just dumps rain. So uh, just to it's, hear that you've not had any rain, that's pretty unusual. Yes, it we is. did
2: not have rain this summer. We had a lot of dried out grass, very unusual weather while other places were. Flooding and doing all kinds of rainy things. We were doing a rain dance outside and getting no results.
0: Huh. Oh, man. I remember so, thinking of yeah. not that long ago, what did Vermont do to get God so mad at them? That's really, that's in it's such gorgeous, gorgeous, all of New England, really. They're a wonderful part of the country. And we've been to Vermont, have Suzanne and I, and it's just a shame. We were really sorry to hear about that and hope that all is getting better now.
1: Absolutely. I
0: and getting better and being more efficient in life and therefore more successful, get yeah, more yeah. out of life, mm-hmm. more life in your years, more years in your life, ideally. This is
2: our second interview of this gentleman. First one was in June of 2022. And I realized today, the first time we talked to him was one week after I contracted COVID. There
0: <laughs> we go. And one today week I'm after. Healthy. And in just three additional weeks, you were over it just like that. Right, right. Yeah, that was one of those subvariants that yep. we don't need, that nobody needs. Well, we're, the so gentleman we're talking happy- about is author Matthew Dix, Matthew Dix yep. who's a prolific writer. Mm-hmm. The book that really caught our attention is called Someday is Today. 22 Simple, Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life.
2: Why don't you give him his mad props today? I got a lot of questions.
0: I shall do so, Matthew Dix, as earlier noted, is the author of Sunday is Today, and nine other books, it may be ten other by now, but this is one of the things we want to find out. He is a prolific writer, a best-selling novelist, nationally recognized storyteller, one might say a raconteur an award-winning elementary school teacher. He teaches storytelling and communications at universities, corporate workplaces, and community organizations. Matthew has won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions and together with his wife, created the organization Speak Up to help others share their stories. They also co host the Speak Up Storytelling podcast, He lives in Connecticut with his family, and later on, you can find out where you can visit him online. But for the moment, let's say hello to Matthew Dix once again. Matthew, delighted to have you back on Manson Mitchell.
3: It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back.
2: And I want to tell you why we are having you back. We have a lot of guests that we only interview one time. We get the information. It's super great. And then ta-ta. (laughs) But with you, we read the book, and this is what I needed to tell you, Matthew. I have made personal changes in my life as a result of reading Someday is Today.
3: I'm so glad. That's wonderful to hear.
2: Yep, absolutely. And I was going to tell you a couple of them before I start launching into my questions. When we spoke to you last time in June of 22 you were talking about unloading half the dishwasher and we were giggling about it because you said I can unload half the dishwasher in about 136 seconds. And and therefore, uh, you know, when your wife says, why did you only unload half the dishwasher? Well, that's all the time you had it at that moment. And then you get the other half unloaded. Well, we just thought that was hysterical. I have since incorporated that. We currently do not have a working dishwasher. I am the dishwasher. (laughs) And Gary and I walk uh, every day. And there are things that are, you know, going on where I'll say, okay, let's walk. He says, well, I got to get my shoes and socks. And, you know, I need to make a really quick call, just two-minute call. And I say, okay, fine. Formerly, I would like, really, can we just go? I mean, do you really have to do something else before we walk out the door? And now, whenever he says, I will be one or two minutes, I look around for something to do. What can I do for one or two minutes? Invariably, it is to wash a few dishes or dry a few dishes or put something away in the kitchen, clean a counter. My kitchen has become cleaner every day because (laughs) of you. Because I can go in there for 30 seconds and clean something.
0: And Matthew, I want to say on behalf of all of us. (laughs) Husbands and boyfriends, cohabitators.
3: Thank you. No,
0: really, thank you.
3: Well, you know, the thing I like to think about too is that you've gained more time on the back end because now yes. instead of washing those dishes later on, you just have right. you have longer periods of time later on to take advantage and do the things you really want to be doing.
2: You had me thinking about, you know, how I live my life in such a way that there are precious moments. And then there are throwaway moments and what can, how can you do things more efficiently and easier that really work for you? I'll give you one other example before I start getting back into your book. And that is that during the daytime, especially in the morning, that's when I'm doing my best thinking. That's when I'm, I can analyze and I can have good conversations and I can handle paperwork at night. I, I, that's just not available to me. And so I don't get that kind of stuff done in the evening, but what I discovered I can do in the evening is laundry. Laundry is a stupid job. And I was using daytime hours to do laundry. And after I read your book, I said, I'm not going to do the laundry in the morning when I'm my sharpest and I can, I can do smart things. So when I'm tired and we've had dinner and the kitchen is clean, I drag out the laundry. I'm doing laundry seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. It doesn't make a difference. You throw it in the washer, you go back out, you throw it in the dryer, you go back out, you know, you you fold it up. These are mindless jobs. And now I do mindless things in the evening from having read your book, saving all of my smart time and smart jobs for the morning.
3: I so love that. There I, you I, have that's it. Wonderful. Yeah. That's I,
2: why you're back on. <laughs> Well, I'm I said, so glad. I, I uh, said, it, I've been using this guy's stuff. I got to tell him.
3: <laughs> That's great. I, <laughs> I can tell you, the Patriots, um, I'm a New England Patriots fan, and they were on Sunday night just recently, last Sunday. And um, I had a pile of chores just waiting for Sunday night with the Patriots because I know I can sit at the couch. No one bothers me. I can do a whole bunch of mindless things while cheering on my team, and they all of those things were just waiting for the moment that I was going to watch television for three hours and just have a lot of time to do a bunch of things. So I, I believe in that strongly that we move your chores around to the time that make the most sense for you and maximize your brain power for when it's when it's at its best.
2: When we talked to you the first time about someday is today. We were primarily talking about part one in your book, which is called Time, Part One Time. You have a fascinating personal story, which I want to tell people, go to the podcast and listen to it, because we're not going to go over that again today. But what you said about time was so interesting. And we only got we read the whole book, but we only got to that part of it in the interview and the thing that really stands out for me and why i think this information is so perennial is that what you say in the book and what really the book is about is about avoiding regret how can you live your life in such a way that you're you're doing you know stupid jobs very efficiently you are creating time to do things you really like to do and when you get to a point in your life where you're closing in on the end of it you're not sitting there with a lot of regrets you have time to do those things that you say you want to do and that means living your dreams and and I I just think that's that's really great
3: I'm I couldn't have said it better myself I you know I live with sort of relentless fear over someday waking up and looking back on my life and thinking that I wasted, you know, enormous portions of it. And so everything that I talk to people about is designed so that we can maximize the time we have, you know, even things like making sure that when you are of a certain age that you can do certain things, you're doing those things with the acknowledgement that someday as you get older, some doors will close and hopefully other doors will open. But oftentimes when I am called and asked to do something, my answer is often yes, because I say to myself that that phone call might be the only time that person ever calls me and offers me an opportunity. So it's either yes now or no forever and no forever terrifies me. So I grab yes now whenever I can.
2: Are you psychic in any way? (laughs) Because that is exactly where I wanted to start today I made a note and I wanted to talk about saying yes to opportunities and I was reminded of the Jim Carrey movie do you ever see that Jim Carrey movie where he has to say yes to everything
3: no I don't know that movie but I love the premise already
2: (laughs) yes he was he was a very negative person I think he was a lawyer and wasn't it liar, liar 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 was that it and he, was that where he had to say yes he was somehow compelled yes, to say yes to everything
0: yes man is the one that's a yes thank man. you yes, thank man. you
2: Nathan I appreciate appropriately
0: that. enough Yes, yeah. man.
2: yes man and um uh funny funny movie and you say in your book and I love that you know this might be the only time you get this opportunity and yeah and now doesn't mean you're you're going to like everything you're saying yes to no
3: right well the door opens and i tell people you step through the door and you take a look around you decide whether this is a place you want to be and then if it's not where you want to be you come back through the door and you close it but so often people don't bother to open the door it's just it's very popular these days for for you know folks like me who are giving advice to say Um, limit what you're saying yes to, you know, control your time, don't allow people to sort of overextend you. And I disagree with all of that. I think those are people who foolishly believe there is a tomorrow, that buses don't hit people and kill them every single day. I am of the belief that I can get hit by a bus at any moment. So I need to say yes, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. and, And opportunities oftentimes only come along once. And the excuses that people give for saying no, sort of like, well, it's a Wednesday night and, you know, I'm going to get home late and, you know, I'm going to be groggy the next day. No one remembers a groggy morning, you know, three weeks from now, but they remember the time that they had a chance to do something and they didn't do it so they could make sure they got their full eight hours of sleep. I just, I think people love to make excuses to not do things, mostly because of fear, because saying yes often involves a little bit of risk and a little daring.
2: Gary uh, says it's always easier to, to say no to something. Like yeah. It requires less work, right?
0: And, uh, particularly when people are assigning you something or attempting to impose an obligation that you would rather not engage than, you know, to, if it turns out like then you get a phone call, that thing I told you to do, don't do that. Okay. It's always easier to say no and not do something, particularly if it's going to lead you into potential trouble.
2: However, getting back to the saying yes part is you don't know who you're going to meet along the way. And one yes might turn into a whole bunch of other opportunities. And so in in this case, we are kind of talking about the opposite of that. And that is there is a little bit of work involved. There is, okay. you know, as, yes. you, as you said, s- yes. some courage to say, yeah, I'll do that thing. I've never done it before.
0: Right. But this time I'll try it. Well, Matthew brought up a great point when he talked about, you know, not worrying so much about being groggy on Thursday morning after your Wednesday night. I can remember and I'm paraphrasing from a Seinfeld episode in which Seinfeld made the very accurate point that men will trade sleep for a pleasurable encounter. You know, if they're saying yes to an evening's pleasure, they lose sleep. They don't consider that a bad bargain.
3: Right, and you know from reading my book that I believe in sleep. You know, I have a whole chapter on how we should be sleeping more efficiently, and part of that is so that we can do these things where we might be out a little late, or you know, we're we're waking up a little extra early in order to get out there and do something that our friends want to do, or we've been given an opportunity to do. So I believe in sleep. I'm sort of not poo-pooing it, but what I'm saying is, there's just so few opportunities given to us in this world, and when someone says you should try this thing, or you should come with me and do this thing. It is almost it is almost unheard of that you go do the thing and you get home and say, boy, I regret that experience. But so often what happens is we regret hearing about other people enjoying the experience that we did not happen to be there for.
2: Absolutely. One of the things that I like in this part two of the book, which is kind of what where we are today, Part two is called Taking the Leap. And one of my my favorite pages in Taking the Leap is just start. You, you say people just don't get started on
3: stuff. Right. They seek perfection. They say, well, I can't get it started until I have this and this and this. You know, I don't know if I I don't know if this is in the book, but I was working with a woman on productivity and her goal in life was to have a garden in the back of her home. And she had been dreaming of a garden for the longest time, a vegetable garden. And in her mind, all of these things had to be done in order to begin a vegetable garden. And when I started working with her, I said, well, it's, the vegetable garden is comprised of, let's say, 100 tasks that need to be completed. Some take longer and some take shorter. I said, let's do one right now. And so on that day, we bought seeds. Seeds began coming to her house and that forced her to sort of do the next thing, which was, well, I guess I should plot out that garden. Right. So the next day she's in the backyard staking out the garden. And, you know, before long, she had her vegetable garden. And she told me, she said, I can't believe I've stared at my backyard for 10 years dreaming of a vegetable garden. And it essentially took me three weeks to get it started. And all it took was I had to go to Amazon and buy some seeds so I could take that first step forward. So I tell people just take any one of the multitude of steps forwards that are required in order to do something great we
2: We were saying um last time that um you know, not having everything lined up, not having all the ducks in the row. we just we just feel like, well, I can't do it yet. but right. then. That day never comes. Well, and and also the elephant is so big. How do you eat an elephant? You know, (laughs) one bite at a time. I mean, there are ways when I feel overwhelmed about a project. I have a big long lanai here in my house. It's about 20, 30 feet long. And when I clean it, it takes day, it takes hours to clean it, to get the floor cleaned and all the furniture on it. And the other day I needed to move something out there. And I said, I'm only going to clean a third of it. I can't get to every square inch. I'll clean one third. Well, that's how I was able to move the furniture out there that I needed to move out because I only cleaned a third of it. I still have the other two thirds to go, but to chunk it down, I couldn't face working out there for four hours, but I could face working out there for a half hour, or 45 minutes. Yeah, And and so, you know, there are ways to chunk these big things down. Take a bite, take an appetizer-sized bite, and pretty soon, then you can take another bite and then another bite, which is what it is you're talking about that people don't do because they don't have it all together yet. Don't have it all together.
3: Anxiety and fear quite often, too. It's sort of like a big job causes great anxiety in a person. They don't think they can do it. And so in order to do it, they believe they have to have sort of all their ducks in a row. And really all it is, is let's take a small step forward and we'll keep stepping forward until one day we have that vegetable garden in the backyard or we have a book written or we've written a song or we've learned how to play the ukulele. You know, all of the things that people sort of dream of doing in their lives and they just seem overwhelming. You know, my wife learned to play the ukulele and she learned by learning one note at a time. She said, well, today I learned C. I can pluck a C. And that was fantastic because it meant she held her ukulele in her hand and she understood how to pluck a C. And the next day she was going to learn to pluck a new note. And now she can play the ukulele. Like it, it seems like a big thing, but we have to take small steps and not look for perfection. Just look for progress.
2: I love that. And, and, you know, I've used that phrase a lot with Gary where, where I'll say progress, not perfection. Yeah. You know, just take it a, a one step in the right direction. The other, one of the other things that um, I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of dreams. Everybody's got these dreams. Everybody's thinking, you know, if someday I'm going to have a garden. Someday I'm going to write a book. Someday I'm going to do this. Someday I'm going to do that. And one of the things that that you talk about that I thought was so interesting was to look at your dreams not as a fixed point
3: right yes there's sort of a spot on the horizon that is not necessarily uh identified specifically sort of like we're going to move in a general direction but we're not really sure where we're going to ultimately land you know i think that for people who sort of believe that their dream has a specific um identifying mark to it what they're really saying is i can predict the future which is sort of crazy um I believe in the idea of, well, I work with sentences and I want to write a book and I want the book to be about this. But ultimately, what I will acknowledge is that book that I want to be about this, it might actually become a play or it might become a musical or or it might become a children's book or I might perform it on stage or it might become a television show or a movie. All of those things are sort of available to me. So what I think it's going to be, I afford myself the opportunity for it to be many other things as well. So my vegetable garden lady, for example, she might've gone out there and decided she didn't want the whole backyard to be the vegetable garden. Maybe she wanted a small portion or maybe she suddenly decided she wanted a flower garden instead. Whatever it ends up being, we have to sort of not get attached to specificity with our dreams. We have to get attached to a place in the distance that is in the general direction of where we're going. Because so often dreams change, even technology changes which forces our dreams to change as well. You know, I I remember I was talking to a guy who said he wanted to make CDs at a point when music had already gone digital and I had to say to him, I don't know why you're talking about CDs. Nobody owns a CD player anymore. Like, why are you not thinking digitally? And he said, my dream was to always hold a CD like I did when I was a kid. And I said, I think you have to let that go, buddy. Like, I think you can move your music digitally and that's going to be fine. You're still making music. You're still doing something but to to say I want to hold a cd seems like it seems like you're holding on to something that is unnecessary and sort of not going to be very productive for you
2: I had a a dream about spending some creative time maybe sketching the way I used to sketch years ago and I haven't done it in a very long time and was intimidated about where do I begin what do I sketch I don't know what to do a girlfriend of mine sent me a coloring book and <laughs> and 50 pencils. Yeah. Now that's not that wasn't my idea, but I love the coloring book. It's very detailed and all my creativity comes out in choosing the colors that I'm going to put into the spaces and I have where I haven't done the sketching which was very specific. What I have done is I have taken out that coloring book, um, maybe weekly, at least once a week, where I will meditatively sit in front of the TV and I'll just be coloring something in the coloring book. And I love what I've colored. I've taken photos and sent them to my friends and said, you know, look at what I did today. And they love the fact that, you know, I chose the color. I chose to bring out that that black sketch into something vibrant and alive with what I've chosen, but that wasn't my idea. So there it is looking at the horizon, not the fixed point.
3: Yes. Yeah. And, And it's glorious when that fixed point is achieved. You know, if you're a high school football player and you're dreaming of playing in the NFL and one day you play in the NFL, that's a wonderful thing. But most high school football players who dream of playing in the NFL you know, there's places on the horizon for them if they don't make those teams, you know, they can become coaches and they can become agents and they become attorneys for football players. You know, there's lots of places that they can land that don't necessarily put them on a football field, for example. So I love the fact that you're sort of you're aiming at art and you're aiming at a certain visual form of art. But, you know, you landed in a different place for now. And that doesn't mean you can't start sketching tomorrow. But I love the fact that you're taking steps forward into that area.
2: Well, and that is exactly it. I can decide to start my own sketching. Right now, I'm just loving the coloring. I'm loving picking the colors that I want to pick. And when I see I haven't used one of the colors in a long time, because it still has a point on it, I make a point to use it. It's like, <laughs> oh, I haven't used brown in a long time. So then I'll use the brown one. Yeah. And uh, and so I am enjoying it. And And that's part of what you're saying about not having regrets is, enjoying some of your time yeah make make the time and use the time that you've made available to enjoy some time and that's what I, I like about that
3: and, you know for every moment that you're uh, coloring in your calling book there's a million people who are sort of mindlessly watching television doing you know doing something that they will forget they have done three months from now so you will have a actual physical object That will represent the time that you spent, which I love as well. And and you're doing, I'm sure, fantastic things for your brain and your hand-eye coordination, all of those things. There's a million wonderful things that you're doing and engaging in that activity, which I think is great.
0: We are talking with Matthew Dix. He is a multi-published author, to say the least, And the one we're focusing on once again today, this is Matthew's second visit with us. Someday is Today, 22 Simple, Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. Great subtitle, too. We all need to be propelled toward that which is most creative in our life. And it seems that life insists on our going forward rather than backward. That's just the way it works. We'll have a lot more to say on this grand subject and some particulars and some stories when we come back. Plus, I'm going to have an opportunity to ask Matthew what he would do if he had a golden opportunity to address a team near and dear to his heart. And I'll let him just sit with that for a couple of minutes while we go through some commercials. And then when we come back, we'll have some more fun with Matthew Dix. We are Manson Mitchell, and we're sure glad you tuned in.
1: Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to ManceAndMitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary
0: Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at
1: Facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance mitchell.
0: bored with the other stations hammering away on the same old talking points try alternative talk 1150 and get some variety
2: welcome back to manson mitchell saying goodbye to summer saying hello to autumn today which arrived uh 2 50 a.m carrie is that what you said eastern time that's right eastern time okay matthew dix you have nine books out there we're talking about one of them someday is today Please let our listeners know where they can get your books, how they can reach you, and anything else you would like to share.
3: Sure. Well, you can get my books sort of wherever they're sold. Um, Amazon is easy, but you know I support independent booksellers. So I always say go there. And if you can't find my book, uh, tell them to get it for you. And that is good for the world. Uh, if you want to find me and all the things that I do, you can go to MatthewDix.com or you can go to storyworthymd.com. That's where all my storytelling um, business takes place. In addition to uh, sort of helping people creatively, I'm a storyteller and I help businesses and individuals and uh, Olympic athletes and priests and ministers and rabbis and the FBI. I I help a lot of people with storytelling, um, whether they're trying to do it for customers or uh you know clients or attorneys all these kinds of people so you can find me in those places but yes i have a bunch of books i'm also a novelist so if you're interested in fiction i have uh, lots of those books as well
2: excellent thank you matthewdix.com dix is not d-i-x it's d-i-c-k-s matthewdix.com so that's the place to find him
0: and you want me to talk about the lions i did want you to talk about about the lions okay so you know if we were true to the the old and disproven axiom you would be doing all the work and asking while I sit on my butt here all day in the shade and and that's what the males do and thereby hangs a tail a lion's tail as it were Matthew what did you discover and how did this acquire such importance such significance to you about the bromide that the female lion does all of the hunting and looks like the males other than procreating and keeping away other male lions pretty much have it easy but you looked into this you delved into it and found out
3: differently i did well i mean to be honest scientists delved into it i did not go check out lions myself uh but once sort of drones became a possibility in this world and we were able to look at these animals you know in their natural habitat without sort of getting eaten by them in the process. Uh, what scientists discovered is that male and female lions, they just have different hunting methods. And so female hunt. Female lions hunt during the day in a way that is very visible to people. They sort of run down animals and chase them and, and kill them while the male lions sort of sit by the lagoon and hang out in the brush and relax. And so the perception for a long time was that the females were the hunters and the, the male lions just sort of sat behind it and did nothing. But once we were able to look at these animals more closely, what we discovered is male hunters, male hunters, male lions hunt at night. And what they do is they find these game trails and they sort of set themselves up on a game trail and they wait for their dinner to come walking along. And, you know, unbeknownst to dinner, it, The lion pops out of the brush and kills the animal and has dinner that way. So expending fewer calories in order to get the calories they want and get their meal. And so it became something important to me because, well, first of all, I'm happy to hear that the male lions aren't sort of, you know, sloughing off and not doing the work that they need to do. But it's just a great metaphor in terms of we all get our jobs done, but some of us do them in a way that's just far more efficient. And so the male lion, it turns out, is is capturing just as many calories for itself, but just doing it in a way that is far more efficient than the female lion. And, you know, this is not a male or female sort of story as much as it is efficiency. And all of that comes into my life, including emptying the dishwasher. Right. There's a more efficient way to do it and a less efficient way to do it. And if you do it the more efficient way. Over time, you're going to accumulate minutes, which I think are incredibly valuable. So I try to emulate the male lion and find the most efficient means of getting tasks done so that I can enjoy my day. So I can sit in the grass and, and procreate and take long naps and do all those things that I would rather be doing rather than hunting down a gazelle in the middle of the day in the, in the scorching heat of the African sun.
2: You know, Matthew, I I really appreciate that you say that it's not a male female thing. And you say that, and so thank you. Yes. But but I I have a tendency to think that females take on way too many jobs, work way too hard, are not as efficient as they could be, don't do enough delegating. And so I see that play out among humans as well as lions. Yes, the males of the species can be very efficient and do things beautifully. But I think the women are just running around like a bunch of chickens.
3: Well, you know, as an elementary school teacher, I work primarily with women. You know, I tend to be a man in a room with 17 women for the last 25 years. And, you know, I think honestly there's a tendency for men to frankly be more selfish than women and as a result they tend to be more focused on themselves and on making their lives more efficient for themselves and women tend to be more outward looking and sort of taking care of everyone but themselves and so as a result i think men are driven to efficiency out of personal need and desire to make our lives better whereas women tend to seem to be you know interested in making other people's lives better, which is a glorious thing, but oftentimes results in you know unfortunate uh overextension and not taking care of oneself enough.
0: What do you think? I think a lot of it is true. And yeah. you know, for the individualists among us, you know, we, if anything, I'm a notorious overthinker. So I mean, I'm caught up in a lot of obsessive thinking and, and ruminating, ruminating. You talk about a waste of time, Matthew. It's like, you know, if, <laughs> if I if I can say it once, well, I'm sure I can say it a second time better and mm, better check that a third time. I, well, wait a second. I missed a comma there. So and, <laughs> and I can waste a great deal of time and energy on useless repet- repetition and um, just sort of uh, compulsive activity. That's something I've thought all my life. I can remember being that way when I was a preteen and I haven't licked that problem yet. We'll see how much time I have to go on that. But that's for me, those who nurture can be nurtured. Matthew, I would say this, and I've discovered this by just seeing people throughout my life. It's great to nurture. It's great to live for others. I've heard this said countless times, read it as well there, but the ones who are happiest are those who live in the service of others. And I always say probably 17 times, yes, that's true to an extent, but you are not living a balanced, happy life if it's all going out. And I'm speaking of energy. If it's all going out and none of it's coming back, you are living an unbalanced life. I've even had a lady of my acquaintance who is quite wise for her tender years say to me that if if you want to live the kind of life, and who would, if you want to live the kind of life where you're going to risk getting cancer, in particular, she mentioned pancreatic cancer, just keep giving of yourself and giving and giving and giving and giving without receiving the necessary return of love or the reinforcements that life affords us. It's all going out, it's not coming back in. And in some way, it depletes your energy in that particular spot. And we all know that pancreatic cancer doesn't have a very high success rate for being cured. So I just think it it comes down to balance. You've got to be able to, to accept, to receive the good in life and the love from others, as well as requiring of yourself that you extend love. Does that make sense to you?
3: Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think that the word I love to use, probably because it's sort of a, a not the common word, I like to use the word selfish. I often am telling the people in my life who seem to be overextending themselves for other people, I say it's time to be a little selfish. You know, my wife recently said to me, I'm thinking of going to New Orleans with my girlfriends. What do you think of that? And I said, well, I was in Bermuda with my buddies playing golf in February, and I was in Florida in November, and I was in Arizona in April, so I was taking care of myself. I don't understand why you're asking. Like, I think you should come to me and say, I am going to New Orleans with my girlfriends because I want to do that, and I would have been fully supportive of it. But I think being the nurturing caregiver that she is, her tendency is to ask permission, and to worry about the people in her life and how they will feel about her decision to be a little selfish. And I say, be a little selfish. You need to take care of yourself. If you're not recharging your own batteries, you know, you're not going to take care of anyone. The same thing about the plane. When the, when the oxygen mask falls, you put it on yourself first. Because if you don't, you're not going to be helpful to anybody. So we have to be selfish. Put the oxygen mask on ourselves. Take some nice deep breaths. And then look for the people who we can help.
2: There's a a first cousin to what we were talking about with the lion story and the efficiency. And this was a a note that I, I made when I was thinking about it. I think anytime we start anything new, we'll have a tendency to do it inefficiently because we don't know what we're doing. And then if unless you're going to keep repeating the same inefficient behavior. I think there is a way to become more efficient by just being aware of what it is you're doing. And I was thinking about when Gary and I were first in the radio business, which um, was over 16 years ago. And if there was a way to do it the most time consuming laborious way, that's the way I did it because (laughs) I didn't know anything about radio. And so, you know, making CDs and sending out emails and like all a bunch of work. And then little by little by little by little, Gary said, well, how how many people are we reaching here? Do we really need to do that? How long is this taking? What's the return on investment here? And so it, it like in the beginning, when you don't know what you're doing, you do everything. But I think in time, as you become more proficient, you can kind of cut out the things that really you don't really have to do.
3: Yes, I completely agree. I was playing golf again, six o'clock in the morning, just this past Thursday by myself, because no one wants to go out at six o'clock in the morning because they think they have to be sleeping. It was a beautiful morning. And I was you know, halfway through the round when one of my fellow teachers texted me and she said, I hope you're not playing golf today. We have back to school night. You should be getting your slides ready. She was sort of hassling me because I had been playing all week and I'd been sending her pictures to torment her, basically to tell her, start taking care of yourself. And I told her via text while I was playing golf, I said, no one ever remembers your slide deck. No one ever remembers any of the images that you send. All parents want to know is, what are you doing for my kid? And what kind of a human being are you? And all of that comes through what you say. So the slides are irrelevant. And to her credit, she said, I have been teaching for 26 years. And unfortunately, I think you might be right. I have been spending hours perfecting a slide deck that no one actually remembers. And I think we do a lot of that in our lives. I think we tend to sort of get attached to habits and routines. And what we do necessary i have to do this because people expect me to do this no one's expecting you to do anything most people are not noticing what you're doing and so the more we can free ourselves of those needless tasks the happier we are
2: thank you thank
0: you that was great um you know matthew your life has been a study in perseverance and a lot of other things but i believe that virtue the virtue is strong with this one the perseverance if I owned, and here here's another story. I mean, you know, I shouldn't pretend to know what I don't know because last NHL hockey season, I would say, I don't know how many times I said it, probably obsessively, that you know, there's all this talk about are they going to make the playoffs? is oh, this team are they going to make the playoffs? Do you think they're going to sneak into the playoffs? I said, who cares? Because anybody that gets into the playoffs, as far as they think they're going to go, they're only going to have the honor of losing to the Boston Bruins. This is a (laughs) juggernaut that cannot be stopped. You know They're going to hoist the cup. There's no question about it. And so what's all this hoo-ha? So round one of the playoffs comes along. And along with that, the Florida Panthers, uh, technically the last team to make the playoffs, they sneak in and they defeat in seven games. Thrilling series. Nevertheless, the Florida Panthers defeat the Boston Bruins, who were record-setting regular season champions, just accumulating the points with wins, just incredible, a juggernaut, as I say. If I owned the Boston Bruins, Matthew, I would love to hire you to talk to them about the virtue of perseverance in the face of what must fell to all of the, the Bruins, their organization, all of their fans like you, to be an unmitigated disaster. And yet, you're going to put the skates on and grab that stick, and the and the goalie's going to have his mask on, etc. For the start of the next season. To mix a, a, a sports metaphor here, I recall that in uh, college basketball, on the other hand, and it sort of proves a point for me. The University of Virginia Cavaliers basketball team was the first team as a number one seed, top dogs, to lose to a number sixteen team, which is as low as you go. They got bumped off. Well, that's a humbling experience. And yet, if I recall correctly, the very next season, the University of Virginia Cavaliers won the championship. There. So when I think about what happened to the Bruins, and I can still remember, was it Mr. Bergeron there in the the look of just shock and devastation on his face there when he had to realize we're out of this thing in the first round. What would you, as a motivational speaker and expert storyteller, tell them to get them motivated to put that behind them and pursue the present moment and all of its
3: opportunities? I think I would tell them this. I would say that last season was comprised of 89 games, 82 regular season games, and seven playoff games. And over the span of 89 games, we performed extraordinarily well. We were the best team in the National Hockey League for 89 games. Unfortunately, over the last seven of those games, it ended up being a four and three record. Flip it and we're still playing. But let us not forget that we played 89 games over the course of the season and we were pretty extraordinary. And what happened at the end was essentially the numbers didn't work out in the last seven in our favor, But let us not discount the journey that we took, the joy that we brought to our fans every night for that entire season, the joy that we felt over the course of that season. And yes, it's true, those last seven games, the numbers didn't work out as well. But we're also in a sport where, honestly, the puck, you know, goes one way or another and a game can tip. Were we a worse team? Over the last seven games, or did we just sort of mathematically not land where we wanted to land? I would say the Bruins were an extraordinary team, one of the best teams to ever play the game. But unfortunately, over the course of the last seven games, things just didn't go our way. But overall, let us not discount the greatness of the season and the greatness of the season that we're about to have as well. I would say something to that effect, which is the same thing, by the way, as a Celtics fan, I tell my friends who get so frustrated with the Celtics when I say, listen, We were one of the last four teams standing. Like, that's pretty good. I know we want to win the championship, but can we celebrate the fact that we were one of the last four teams playing? Like, that is an amazing thing also. And I know it's frustrating that you don't make it to the end, but top four is not a bad place to be. And all the joy that we had getting to that point cannot be discounted along the way.
0: And I would only add, because I'm a person of certain years, that I can't even tell you how many times I sat in front of my black and white television as a kid and watched Red Auerbach light up a cigar. (laughs) They're in triumph, you know. So if you look at life as a journey, and hopefully a long, rewarding journey, if you put it all in perspective, the Celtics are still royal. They are royalty in basketball. And as far as I'm concerned, they always will be.
3: Yes. Well, I have a friend named Jenny who wrote a book. And she's trying to get it published now. She's looking for an agent. And I think she probably will get one. It's a great book. But if she doesn't end up with an agent and the book doesn't end up publishing, and maybe she goes through some self-publishing route so she can have a physical copy, I will tell her the same thing, which is to say, do not discount the journey. You spent two years writing an extraordinary book, and if no one wants to put it on a bookstore shelf that doesn't discount the accomplishment that you have had already most people say they're going to write a book at some point in their life and almost no one ever does jenny wrote a book and she needs to celebrate that and enjoy the ride even if that final step that she wanted to take doesn't actually happen a lot of great things happened along the way and we have to acknowledge that at all times
2: In the last few minutes, I want to address um, just what you're talking about. And this is also toward the end of the book, too, which I highly recommend someday is today by Matthew Dix. Chapter 22 is called Pessimists Die Knowing Only That They Were Correct. Optimists Thrive. And I want to read one of the paragraphs here from this chapter. People quit on their dreams all the time. It's easy to give up. Very few people on this planet make their honest-to-goodness dreams come true. Most settle for second or third tier at best. More often than, than not, they settle for nothing at all. They move through this life without direction or ambition, falling into the path of least resistance. They travel like water down a mountain, meandering meekly to the bottom. I wanted you to talk a little bit about the thriving of optimism and how really important that is in what you're doing with your life.
3: Sure. You know, I actually just taught this to my fifth graders recently. We talk about how if you're a pessimist, let's say there's a there's a test coming up in two weeks. And the pessimist looks at the test and says, well, I'm not going to do very well because I'm not a good student of math, and I'm going to assume that that test is not going to turn out well for me. And so that means that over the course of the next two weeks, that student will feel rotten about the test that is coming up and then will fail because they didn't study or because they're not good math students. For whatever reason, they will ultimately fail. But the result is two weeks of pain and a failure. The optimist says, I could do great on that test. Like, past performance does not guarantee future performance. Like, I might crush this test. I'm going to study. I'm going to do my best, and we'll see what happens. And that means they're going to have two weeks of sort of happiness and joy and feeling good about themselves. If they fail the test, they still will be in the same place as the pessimist, except Those two weeks prior to the test will be a much more enjoyable two weeks. So pessimists often say like, see, I told you so. And I say, yeah, but you suffered for the two weeks in order to say I told you so. I assumed everything was going to turn out great. I had hope in my heart. And if we end up in the same place, at least I spent two weeks with hope in my heart. And so the optimist tends to be the happier person. The optimist tends to live longer because we don't experience as much stress and loathing and dread as someone who, yes, is correct. They, you know, It will not turn out well in the end, but I choose to feel good and I choose to feel hopeful along, along the way. If you can embrace optimism, the results may be exactly the same, but the path getting there will be a lot more joyous for the optimist.
2: Yes and and you say that you know there's all, always going to be negative forces that are against you but you know to be creative to enjoy people and things to do and and your good health and good conversations to be to put that into your life to make that your focus that optimism is going to give you far more joy than just to be right about how crappy things are
3: it's also going to bring people to you like very few people want to befriend a pessimist you know the only people who really want to befriend pessimists are pessimists and right. that's great for all of us because those people tend to be people that we don't want in our lives anyway they tend to be sort of off in the corner off in the corner telling us that the world is coming to an end and climate change is going to destroy us and the next pandemic is going to kill all of us. And I would prefer that for them to be off in the corner. They may Mm -hmm. prove to be correct in the end, but I choose to be around optimists. And if you are an optimist, you will undoubtedly draw more people to you as a result. And I think bringing more people into your life is always a good thing.
2: I do too. More people, more opportunities, more joy, more love. I love that. Mm -hmm. Someday is today. Matthew Dix at MatthewDix.com and...
0: What else, Gary? Just with one minute to go, what project is next for you, Matthew? Do you
3: have another book in the works in the pipeline? I do. I have um I have a novel that I'm about halfway through, and um I have a children's I'm starting to write picture books for children. And I'm writing right now a how-to book for students, sort of ages, let's say, 8 to 15. All of the advice that I've been giving to kids over the years, I'm sort of trying to coalesce it into some rules that kids can follow to to get through those challenging puberty years where kids don't know who the hell they are and um, why they exist on this planet.
2: Yeah.
0: That's, we just wish you continued success and joy in living. You are, whether you ask for the moniker or not, I think of you as a role model, Matthew Dix, and I look forward to our next
3: conversation on the air. I do too. And thank you very much. That's very kind of you.
2: All right. And in the meantime, we will be back next weekend once more. So join us at 10 a.m. Pacific, Friday and Saturday. Any other parting words, Gary?
0: Enjoy autumn. Enjoying Enjoy these, autumn. The mellow months are here and we hope you have a great weekend everyone and a great week ahead. Here's what's coming up next week on Manson Mitchell.